Welcome to History Conspiracy Podcast, where we provide the audio and you decide whether it's history or conspiracy. If you would like to support this podcast, you can go to paypal.com and donate any amount to History Conspiracy Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. The Senate Investigation into CIA Drug Trafficking Investigation or Cover-Up This is Senate Investigator Jack Blum. Welcome to Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. Today we'll deal with one subject, and that is the recently conducted hearings before the Senate Select Intelligence Committee, chaired by Senator Alan Spector, co-chaired by Bob Kerry. The lead-off witness uh, in that uh, uh, hearing, which was prompted by the series of articles in the San Jose Mercury News, uh, alleging uh, contra cocaine connection into South Central Los Angeles involving the Central Intelligence Agency, was Jack Blum, and we're uh, privileged to have uh, Jack Blum with us today. Jack Blum was a special counsel to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for some time, and he was the chief investigator for the Senate Subcommittee on Narcotics, Terrorism, and International Operations, uh, chaired by Senator John Kerry. These hearings took place in 1988, uh, where you looked at the at the uh, the contra drug connection. And just to begin with, uh, uh, Jack Blum, I'm astounded. Um, <clears throat> first of all, in the press coverage of the hearings, you were the lead-off witness. You were followed by Mr. Uh, Heitz, the 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 CIA's um, Inspector General, and then Mr. Bromwich of the Justice Department. Um, but there was no uh, uh, mention of your testimony, which I found fascinating, in both the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times. Uh, what is it? Do they think that that somehow this is an old story? Uh, I'm not really sure as to why there was no coverage. I don't know whether it was reportorial laziness or whether they simply felt there was nothing new that was added. But I can tell you, even where there was coverage, what you thought happened at that hearing depended on what city you were in. Well, it's it is uh, strange that uh, that uh, people would see this as an old story in the sense that, I mean, none of this has been resolved, has it? I mean, the, the, a great deal of repertorial effort has been put into into analyzing and and debunking the San Jose Mercury news story, but absolutely no effort has been put into looking at uh, the evidence that's extant and that's been hanging since uh, the mid '80s. I think the place to begin is to talk about the complete failure of Congress and the administration to deal intelligently with intelligence reform. Uh, The Cold War is over. The demands on the intelligence community have changed radically. Uh, The time has really come for a serious public review of what we mean by intelligence and what is appropriate for the government to be doing in a world when we don't face the threats that people uh, saw before in international communism. Uh, now, that, that kind of review simply hasn't occurred. In fact, the CIA budget is up, the intelligence community budget is up, even as we're cutting the budget of 
the State Department and other agencies involved in foreign policy. And uh, I think we should be doing a thorough review of the entire history of intelligence operations and how they connected with uh, both drug trafficking and organized crime. In the sense that uh, we've gone through this tremendous uh, geopolitical transformation since the Cold War, where we, we our 50 years we're focused on national security and, and, and national defense, and we suddenly in a world in which there are no nation states effectively threatening each other, but the threats come from subnational uh, disintegration of uh, of borders and cultures and religious differences and the transnational phenomenon, which we'd like to, I'd like to talk about today, which is drugs and crime, and that is clearly uh, on the rise. And <clears throat> indeed, many uh, the former country of the, of the Soviet Union, now Russia, is a country completely beset by subnational and transnational. Uh, uh, security threats. Well, the the interesting thing is that uh, drugs have shown up in uh, one civil war after another and one major security problem area after another. So if you look at Bosnia and the problems in Bosnia, many people may not understand that, among other things, the Bosnian war uh, was financed by drug dealing. And people in Europe know that the former Yugoslavia became a center for drug trafficking as this war went on because people had the opportunity in the war zone to uh, to smuggle and deal uh, in narcotics coming out of South Asia. Well, we you can... go back to, to Beirut, which was destroyed in an incredible civil war that went on for years, virtually every one of the groups in that civil war was involved in heroin trafficking. Indeed, the Bacca Valley is uh, is the is the jewel in the crown of uh, of uh, the drug trade in in Lebanon and in uh, Afghanistan, where the war never ended. Uh, the backbone of support for that war is uh, heroin. Uh, the people who are the refugees and the people who continue to fight are funding uh, their existence and their continued ability to fight by uh, growing and distributing opium poppy, and then uh, transforming it into heroin and shipping it elsewhere. So there is a tremendous correlation between the problem of narcotics and the problem of uh, war and insurrection. Well, that would lead us then into the, 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 the subject of the hearings. And here in Los Angeles, Jack Blum, uh, there's been an enormous uh, and extremely uh, incendiary uh, reaction to the allegations that came forth in the this series of articles in the San Jose Mercury News. And um, clearly, I mean, at least we can agree on the surface that it seems to me that in that period of the 80s, we were, uh, in order to to uh, prosecute an, an unpopular war that wasn't entirely authorized by the Congress uh, against uh, the Sandinistas, whether there, there was a direct link or not, from that period forth, this country has been beset with the scourge of cocaine, and particularly crack cocaine. So damage has been done to the United States. There's uh, no question uh, about it. And I think the problem in discussing this is to separate uh, the issues. Uh, in Los Angeles at the moment, uh, Freeway Ricky Ross is trying to say that his main supplier for cocaine was CIA-connected, and that he was a kind of major purveyor of crack cocaine in South Central and 
and therefore he and the CIA had a very important role in uh, inundating uh, Los Angeles with cocaine during that period. There are several things that are wrong with his story and several things wrong with making the argument that this was some sort of plot uh, on the part of the government. Uh, Freeway Ricky was responsible for only a tiny, tiny fraction of the cocaine that came into Los Angeles. And uh, one should be reminded it was pouring in from Mexico. It was coming in from a variety of sources. Uh, it was available not only in South Central, but certainly in the uh, entertainment areas of the city. There were stories about cocaine being sold at the NBC commissary. Uh, there were all kinds of stories about movie stars and rock stars who were going into various treatment centers, uh, not to mention the athletes. And I don't think they were all being supplied by Freeway Ricky. Now, indeed, it was a, a for a while it was a fad in Hollywood, but it had a peculiar trickle down effect. Jack Blum. It started with the rich and famous and and the yuppies, and then they sort of tired of it after a while. It seems. And, well, cocaine, but cocaine then, does have that natural history. But to go back to the the core of the problem, uh -huh. uh, if you focus only on the freeway Ricky story. Uh, it's very easy for people to deny that the intelligence world was responsible for a huge problem. If you, on the other hand, go back to the hearings we had and go back to the period, what you very quickly find out is that our government systematically kept quiet about, helped, uh, and avoided confronting a variety of people who were responsible, truly responsible, for flooding the entire country with cocaine. And I begin there with General Noriega, who was, by his admission, by uh, various other public statements on the CIA payroll, clearly involved in cocaine trafficking, and we looked the other way because he was supporting us, and that is all documented in Ollie North's diaries. You have the case of Honduras, where uh, the generals in Honduras were involved in the cocaine trade, where we knew they were involved and we knew that they were protecting a major player, a man named Ramon Mataballesteros, and instead of doing anything about it, we actually closed the DEA office because we needed those Honduran generals and we needed the bases in Honduras. For, uh, for the Contra War. For the Contra War. The Contras were, in fact, uh, in operation in Honduras. And that uh, same pattern was followed in Haiti, uh, it uh, colored the way we responded to Mexico as the problems in Mexico surrounding the Camarena murder became apparent. And uh, it, it is a major piece of why the drug cartels were able to entrench themselves and get the kind of power and position they did. So either consciously or unconsciously, at a high policy level, during that period, the conditions were created for this Holocaust to happen. Yes. And, and why the, it, that's what I find so extraordinary, that the press is treating this like an old story. But, you know, the Holocaust is an old story, but they're, putting, they're still Nazi war criminals on trial. Uh, there's one in, in Rome as we speak. The problem has been uh, finding a tool for getting accountability for getting a public discussion of what has hitherto been secret policy and secret decisions. I think it is incredibly important in a democracy that when decisions are taken that have this kind of consequence, uh, people fully understand them and debate them. And I would argue that even if you have to make decisions in secret, ultimately 
when decisions are taken and the consequences have been badly thought through or not debated, that the people who are responsible for not understanding what the consequences of their actions were, at the very least, be dismissed and taken out of the uh, out of the game. Uh, and if if it's bad enough, probably in some way uh, disciplined or punished. The thing that the intelligence community has been incredibly weak at doing is just that, which is owning up to mistakes and uh, cleaning the mistakes out. Uh, look at the problems they had with the Alder James case. And it's very tempting in a situation like that to continue uh, applying rules of secrecy beyond all reason, because what those rules of secrecy do is they protect monumental stupidity. Uh, and we've got to we've got to break through that, and I think everyone in America should have the opportunity to understand how the decisions were taken, and who was saying what to whom. Well, indeed, it it as I say, you know, justice delayed is justice denied, and uh, and it's extraordinary that nobody wants to 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 touch this. And and you tried in nineteen in your nineteen eighty eight hearings. Uh, to investigate the entire uh, arena that we're talking about, and I understand that that back then you were thwarted at every turn. Yes, indeed. The investigation that we ran uh, was one that we had to work out through uh, what I would call the obvious back door, uh, because the government uh, people would not give us access to their documents, or when they did, the documents were highly classified. We had to do the other thing which is go out into the field and talk to the people who knew what was going on. And as I said in the hearing, what is uh, considered a grave secret in Washington is frequently very obvious when you get out in the field and you talk to people. Uh, what we found in the field was lots of people understood that the war had both created the conditions for drug trafficking and that there were drug traffickers who were flying the airplanes and uh, running the supplies and doing all kinds of other things uh, in the Contra support operation. We had at one point testimony from a pilot who at different times in his career was flying drugs for himself, uh, flying supplies for the Contras, flying supplies for the humanitarian relief organization, uh, and working as an undercover for the Drug Enforcement Administration and the Customs Service. And the way we came upon him was, he was a photographer at the Miami International Airport who became interested in old junk airplanes. And he saw this one airplane, a DC-4, that was being repainted almost every week. And he would take photographs as one tail number would be painted out and another one painted on. And he gave us the complete set of photographs. And it turned out this was the one airplane, and every time it flew a mission for a different uh, agency or for a different whatever, uh, they changed its look and they changed its tail number. Uh, and the guy who was the pilot figured, well, I'm doing all this work for different parts of the government. I can do a little bit for myself on the side. Uh, that kind of uh, idiocy was uh, rampant during that period. And and uh, I, in a sense, the, the, if we go back to that period uh, and and uh, uh, put the context of President Reagan being elected, wanting to draw a line in the sand, the sense that uh, the Sandinistas were were surrogates of the Cubans, and uh, 
that uh, the, you know the, there was a sort of ineffective rebirth of the Cold War. It ended, ended up being the last gasp of the Cold War. But at the time, there was a great deal of. Uh, the, uh, it's fair to say <laughs> that the line in the sand was drawn, right, Jack Blum? Yes, there's there's no doubt that that's what they were doing. But now let's consider what had gone on inside the intelligence community. Serious analysts at the CIA in the late seventies had reported that uh, the Russian economy was in a state of collapse and they could not ever hope to continue the sustained level of spending needed to keep pace in the Cold War. When those people reported to their superiors, they were told that their reports were unacceptable, and uh, Gates, who was then in charge of the uh, intelligence analysis product, sacked these people and appointed a so-called Team B, that came back and said that the Soviet threat was uh, even worse than anybody had thought. At the beginning of the Reagan administration, there was actually a general who was assigned to the White House who was suggesting that the threat was so dire that we probably ought to do a preemptive strike. And thank goodness he was sacked because even those people realized how extreme he was. Uh, the point here is that there was a completely ideologically driven analysis of reality. And uh, in my judgment, that ideologically driven analysis of reality cost the American taxpayers about a trillion dollars in weaponry that we probably didn't need to build. And I, and I would also I would also argue, and I think it's it's uh, correct to say that it led to a complete wrong analysis of what the threat to the United States was during the period. Mm-hmm. Because any rational man who looked at what was going on in America, looked at the tons of drugs coming into the city, looked at uh, the kinds of gang warfare we had. We actually had a, a shootout in Miami, uh, which uh, is called in the history of the drug war the Dadeland Massacre, where a group of uh, drug traffickers actually drove a war wagon into the mall at uh, Dadeland in South Miami, and the place was shot up. Uh, and this was the kind of stuff that was happening on the streets of America. Uh, my argument runs, when you have that kind of warfare on the streets of America, that's a real security threat, especially when the threat is in fact coming from outside the United States. At the same time, I, I would tell you with certainty that there were no Sandinistas running around Miami shooting people. And indeed, since this, uh, since the early 80s, this problem has exponentially gotten worse, and as the as the big enemy has gone away, uh, the 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 appearance and the reality of the extent to which we have a, a national security problem within our own country should become more and more clear. Surely, sure. But and, but and let me another part to this, which I think is worth considering is that many of the threats that we now recognize and we're now turning around to deal with are threats that come out of the earlier blindness. So in our zeal to promote the war in Afghanistan, we turned a blind eye to the uh, extremism and uh, the the extremism of the people who were doing the training in Afghanistan and what they were saying and what they were doing. Uh, As a consequence, there are alumni of those training camps who are now busily planting bombs all over the world and who have become an enormous problem uh, for every organized society. Jack Lum, let's just go go back to the early 80s and the Sandinista War in the sense that this was the genesis of this problem 
that is uh, that is besetting the, the inner cities of this country and uh, has turned South Central Los Angeles into a war zone. And um, this, the price we're paying is exponentially getting greater as as the crack babies become have to be uh, taken through schools, etc. There's a myriad of, of of evidence of how heinous it all is. But the, going back to the 80s, initially the Congress only appropriated, I think, about 19 million uh, f- uh, for the war against uh, or to f- support the Contras in a surrogate war against the Sandinistas. And then uh, then in the mid-80s, the, the funding was cut off, and, and that's pretty much when Oliver North comes into the picture, right? Yes, but you have to understand that if you had done, as I did, a, a kind of discussion with Sandinista, uh, with uh, Contras on the ground, Mm-hmm. That is, the people who are going into Nicaragua to fight. They would tell you that the levels of funding and who got money from where were largely irrelevant to their lives because almost none of that money actually trickled down to people who were trying to fight the war. Uh, it got siphoned off at different levels, to arms dealers, to their own leadership, which maintained houses in multiple cities and uh, lived very, very high. And uh, I met with those people uh, uh, in Miami in 1986 and again in 1989. And I'll never forget a meeting with three Contra veterans, uh, seriously wounded during the war, one of them blind, another one had lost limb. And and they're explaining to me that if we ever have to fight a revolution, we don't want to be part of anything run by your government. Because we never saw any of the money, we never saw any of the support. What that war became was an enormous business and profit opportunity. So the idea that the money was generated by drug trafficking to support a war effort was wrong. What happened was the war and what happened in and around it gave everybody the excuse for having a field day and gave them an enormous profit opportunity, and they took full advantage of it. So you had traffickers who had airstrips, who had access to the United States. You had government officials who knew that nobody would confront them with their uh, accepting bribes and, and with their dealings uh, simply because we needed them too badly, so they took advantage of it. And before it was over, we had managed to have a what was a mom-and-pop industry uh, where small growers dealt with small refiners who dealt with small traffickers transformed into a major multinational business organization, vertically integrated with tremendous financial resources. And by the time the war was over, we were now no longer dealing with a small smuggling operation here and a small farmer there. We were dealing with very large, very well-equipped, very well-armed organizations that had the capacity to steal countries. And, of course, the key to uh, drug trafficking, surely, is to get it across the United States border. And didn't this war and these these conditions that were created uh, make this a lot easier in the sense... Well, uh, there were two ways that it made it easier. One of them was that virtually everyone who was in the smuggling game tried to pretend like he, one way or another, was part and parcel of the resources the United States was using in the war. So virtually every time an arrest was made in Miami or an arrest was made of some small airplane, the guy would say, hey, I'm, I'm working for fill-in-the-blank. Uh, and it would be one agency or another in support of the Contras, flying supplies to the Contras, 
whatever the excuse was, uh, these people were always there, ready to say they were working for the government. Uh, it became a refrain during the period. There were times when, in fact, uh, inspections were relaxed. We knew that. Uh, there would be orders that came over saying, don't look at this shipment inbound, outbound, or whatever. It was never clear to me that that was properly controlled and properly supervised. So it's quite possible that some of the shipments that weren't inspected uh, contained drugs. Well, so I think... all, of this, all of this created an environment where people were able to move, move uh, aircraft and quantities of cocaine that really uh, we couldn't do very much about. But it, but what I think that the, the, it seems to be where the San Jose Mercury News article got slammed in both. There was a th- three day series of articles in the LA Times uh, going through uh, point by point and basically uh, suggesting he got most of it wrong. And um, first of all, do you think that the focus on, that the CIA were, were were dealing drugs was was the wrong focus in as much as as uh, the, I, in your testimony before the, recently before the, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, you pointed out that the, there was more culpability at the level of policymakers. Right. I, I think that it is a mistake to say that uh, first that there was any kind of plot to do African Americans in South Central. Second, I'm, I'm certain that nobody on a U.S. government payroll uh, actually said, hey, let's sell some cocaine to these people to raise money for something that Congress won't appropriate money for. I'm certain that that never happened. Uh, I, I'm equally certain that people who they used as contractors uh, had side businesses, and among the side businesses uh, was dealing cocaine. I know that they knew that those contractors had side businesses, and I know that they said, hey, that's not our problem. That is the problem of law enforcement people. We're just going to close our eyes to what they're doing. Now, that's substantially different than the charge made in the San Jose Mercury. What Gary Webb has done for us is given us the opportunity to say it's time to do a real history of the period and a real look back in the context of a serious uh, uh, consideration of where we ought to go in intelligence reform. And that discussion has not been had. Well, I could... Nobody has tried to really put on the table all of the facts of all of these different things that have gone on to say, we really have to rethink the way we go about this business and make sure that it doesn't happen this way in the future. Well, uh, Jack Blum, I think one could also add to that call and suggest that that since the major newspaper, particularly our local paper here, the Los Angeles Times, have gone to such lengths to to try and disprove a connection between the CIA and 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 crack cocaine in South Central, it's as though well we've disproved that and now let's walk away and forget it. What about the Holocaust itself? Isn't surely this is an opportunity for the whole country to focus on the incredible damage done to the fabric of this society and to the lives of these people in the another area that is off the table for debate in the United States, but really ought to be a very central concern for every citizen of the country. If you are an African-American living in the inner city, your view of the United States of America is, this is a police state which will ultimately imprison me somewhere along the line. The percentage of uh, young black males that go through the criminal justice system is absolutely shocking. And 
what we've done is we've created a situation where once imprisoned, uh, those young black males are stripped of all of their rights for all time. They lose uh, the right to vote. They'll lose the right or the ability to collect a welfare payment under the new legislation. They lose all kinds of rights. And they will note and correctly observe that in the prisons that they're sent to, they'll be asked to do prison labor. And from their perspective, what this is is grossly unfair, because when you have a white person, for example, a recent example of a star on an NBC sitcom, uh, has a cocaine blow-up, he goes off to Betty Ford, and they come up with some fill-in episodes, and he'll be right back on the job as soon as he's dried out. Uh, change the color of the skin and the context, and the guy is going to be in the tank, and he's going to be deprived of his rights. So we have a very serious reception problem, which is backed by reality, which is the focus of drug law enforcement has been the African-American and the minority community, and it has been extraordinarily punitive, and that has been matched by the use of the code words in American politics of drugs, uh, inner city, uh, and uh, crime uh, as a substitute for talking raw race. Now, we've got to acknowledge that, and we've got to look at it. We've got to understand how it looks to people who uh, are in the inner city, and we've got to understand the damage it's doing to the perception of equality of justice in the United States. Uh, and I think that this uh, really, the reaction of the community, uh, really underscores how seriously different the perceptions are, uh, depending on where one lives and the color of one's skin. And that's a very dangerous proposition for democratic society. Let me just remind the audience again, if I may, that I'm speaking with Jack Blum, who is a special uh, counsel for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for a number of years. Uh, I think, what, about 15, 20 years, Jack? You no, well, I, I actually worked for the Senate for a total of 14 years, 14. And on and off. And so that, it's not, it wasn't continuous service. Sure. And, that, but, and you were the chief investigator for the Senate subcommittee on narcotics terrorism and, and international operations in 1988 that was chaired by Senator John Kerry that looked into the activities of the Contras and uh, the cocaine shipping that went on there. And we're talking about this in the context of uh, hearings that you had about a week and a half ago uh, before Senator Specter and Bob Kerry, the co-chairs of the Senate Select Intelligence Committee, you gave testimony if we're going into that. Uh, back to the idea of, of, uh, of um, uh, reform in terms of uh, the, the CIA. I mean, first of all, how can you reform uh, the situation when, as far as I can see, one of the problems is, if we go back to Oliver North and the Reagan White House, one of the problems is, and I believe there was a lot of resistance in the CIA to some of the stuff that North and Casey were up to from the old-timers. I mean, isn't it true that the CIA and other government agencies are, in, for all intents and purposes, toys of the executive branch? They're the ones that get blamed for the, for the misdeeds, but the orders come from the, from the policy people, from the White oh, House. There's no question about that, and I think it's one of the uh, points I tried to make in the testimony, that... It's uh, easy for people to either say the CIA did it or the CIA didn't do it. Whatever they did or didn't do, uh, somebody at a political level had a hand in. And uh, it's uh, at the political level that the real, uh, the real kind of judgment has to take place. But we also have to know what happened at the political level as citizens to be able to make that judgment.
there's a there's a rule here, a rule of thumb that uh, one ought to understand. The oldest single problem in politics uh, since the beginning of time have been lies that have been told by people in power to give them the freedom to do whatever they want. Uh, probably the oldest recorded lie in the history of politics was Pharaoh, who said, I'm God. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some uh, others, uh, you know, coming down the line to Louis XIV, who said, God made me king. But those lies became the basis for giving the uh, ruler or the person in authority the power to do whatever he wanted. And if you couple a large lie with a whole lot of secrecy, uh, really you do have agencies that are the toy of the executive. And it becomes a very attractive and easy thing to do. Uh, Our entire democratic uh, government here in the United States, our Constitution, is built around the proposition that we don't let people do that kind of thing. Uh, I worked uh, for a wonderful man, Senator Philip Hart of Michigan, who, when he was retiring, uh, was asked by a reporter, well, Senator, uh, what can you say looking back over your career? Because, after all, many of the things you really wanted to do, you didn't accomplish. And uh, Senator Hart looked at him and he said, you really don't understand the Constitution. It was written so I couldn't. It was written so no one man can ride in on a white horse and do what he feels like doing. This is a government of checks and balances, of of supervision and uh, criticism. And everything you do has to be seen by other people, and other people have to sign off on it. Yeah, but that's if, what makes the country strong. But, Jack, if you don't know what's going on, you don't have a, have a hope. That's my point precisely. I believe that if any of these things had been discussed publicly, they never would have occurred. Mm. If anybody had said, uh, gee, we have this drug problem with a fellow named Noriega, should he be on the payroll? Uh, it, it wouldn't have survived ten seconds. Now, maybe you can't say all of that quite publicly, but, God, if there had been even real political understanding of what was going on uh, by policymakers who maybe didn't talk to the constituents, someone would have said, wait a minute, this is bloody stupid. Mm. But instead, uh, it was all swept under the rug, and even as it began to emerge, what you got out of the administration, instead of acknowledging the problem, was one denial after another and one attempt after another to cover it up. And I think that that is where uh, democratic institutions really took a hit. And in, you, in your subcommittee that you were the chief investigator for, the, convened in 88, uh, the Narcotics Terrorism and in, in International Operations, you really did do a lot of work trying to, to, to find out what went on in this period and who was culpable. And I take it that every step of the way, uh, as you went up the chain, particularly in the Justice Department, you were thwarted. We had terrible problems at the Justice Department. We had problems with the State Department. The administration as a whole simply turned off and said, uh, we really don't want to help you do what you're trying to do here. Uh, We want to uh, keep this all secret, and uh, we don't want it to discuss publicly. And they went beyond simply not giving us access to where we were able to find witnesses and have public hearings, calling the newspapers the day of the hearing to say, don't believe these witnesses, they're full of it, they're liars, Uh, here's what they said some other time and place, and really tried to trash 
the work we were doing as we were doing it. Now, the, the strength of what they said, they, they were taken at face value, and many editors uh, deliberately played down both the hearings and the report because the administration had so tarnished what we were trying to do. I think the report stands up. I think the work we did stands up. And time and again, I've run into people who said, you people were really way ahead of your time, because many of the things you talked about then have now become obvious and apparent, and we should have paid more attention. And indeed, many of what you talked about then and investigated then have resurfaced because of these articles in the in the in the um, San Jose Mercury News, but but there's been this peculiar backlash where the 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 watchdogs, the press, seem to be really anxious to suggest that there's some details wrong, but totally unwilling to look at the historical record, which, as you've pointed out, is just you know reeks of of of. Uh, complicity of government uh, turning the blind eye of creating these kind of conditions. I mean, this is isn't isn't this when this problem started? I think that uh, you know, looking at long historical patterns is the way you come to understand what the trouble is in the intelligence world or has been. And, mm-hmm. and I want to here separate uh, so that the audience fully understands what I'm talking about. There are a lot of people who work in intelligence. Most of those people are information gatherers, and uh, they're very, very good. They they go about their business very quietly, as they should. Uh, they bring the information back, filter it, sift us, and help the government make decisions. But there's the other world, and that's really the world we're talking about, which is the covert operations world, where people say, we're going to change the way some government is operating, or we're going to change the government. And in that world, there is a kind of subset, not of a real covert operation, but where in preparation or or with, with a view to the possibility that there might be a covert operation, people in the intelligence community maintain liaison with people who are likely to be helpful in a difficult situation in the future. So it's it's that world that we're really talking about that needs the scrutiny and the reform. But but there's a history to that world itself, isn't there? The there was long history, there's two. Long history. Well, let's just start with two incidents when Jim Schlesinger fired a whole bunch of people from the operations, and then later. Stansfield Turner fired, uh, I think, about 1,200 people from the operations division. This is the so-called Dirty Tricks Covert Activities Division of the black part of the CIA. Um, But were they not all rehired, or a lot of these people were rehired by uh, Bill Casey? And and you've mentioned many times that, that, that at the heart of this Contra drug problem were the contractors. So these are there were real problems with contractors and people who were brought in and people to whom things were delegated and proxies where we encouraged certain other foreign governments to do things that uh, really went far beyond the pale. So our dealings with the military people in Argentina, I think, were most extraordinary and uh, really quite reprehensible. Uh, there, there are other examples of it, uh, and and I think that again is part of the issue of supervision and reform, of public discussion and accountability. Uh, there's another point that I think is very important. For a long period of time, people mentally were separating the problems of the inner city and the problems of the social fabric in America from foreign policy problems. 
uh, on one level, people would say, hey, if we're engaged in a war on communism, that's a foreign policy issue, and that's to be discussed uh, by the gurus who know about foreign policy and by people in that establishment, and that's that problem. And then they come to a different compartment called the problems of the inner cities, and that's domestic policy, and that's a whole different cast of people. Uh, turned out that those uh, problems were intimately connected. And uh, the connection was completely missed, and largely because of complacency on the part of people who dealt with domestic problems and, and the failure on their part to recognize the connection. The foreign policy people were able to sell uh, ideas and policies and uh, allow their work to carry on well beyond a time when there should have been political protest. Well, you know, Jack, I've spoken with uh, with uh, uh, former Secretary of State uh, Al Haig, and you know, he 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 had a, a very difficult time. And uh, if it wasn't for uh, for um, Weinberger at the Pentagon and others, um, the Falklands War may have been a t- totally different situation. And you know, it's it, you'd think that anybody in the, in the highest levels of the White House would understand the obvious that in foreign policy, America's biggest foreign policy and security arrangement is NATO, particularly mm-hmm. back then when the Cold War was on, and America's biggest partner in NATO was Britain. Right. But there was this cabal led by Bill Casey and Gene Kirkpatrick who were protecting the Contras, which was their mm-hmm. secret operation, and that was that had been contracted out to the Argentinians, and the Argentinians uh, were, thought that they had Bill Casey and and Gene Kirkpatrick on their side, and, uh, and they made a phenomenal mistake. They they didn't understand that in the crunch, uh, uh, Casey and Kirkpatrick could not carry the day, and the uh, consequences for the Argentine generals was, in the end, I think, fortunately, catastrophic. Uh, they were as bad a bunch as we've seen in the hemisphere in a long time. Uh, that we would do business with them, that we would use them as a proxy, that they would be the original trainers of the Contras, and then that they would be supporting a whole kind of anti-communist battalion through drug trafficking uh, is uh, quite extraordinary. And that we encourage them to do it is beyond extraordinary. And they, before the, the the CIA took them on to train the Contras in in Honduras, they this same group were responsible for the cocaine coup in uh, in, in Bolivia. Bolivia, were they? Not? But I, I think you one has to correct you. You said the CIA took them on. It's right. not. It's the government. Sure, sure. And the question is who in government and at what policy level. And these are questions which we have yet to see the answer to, which I think the American public is entitled to answers to. And yes, it may be historical, but it's absolutely crucial to understanding how the machinery works so that that machinery in the post-Cold War environment can be reformed. But we don't need the secrecy and the kind of institutional arrangements we had during the Cold War in the current environment. We need a completely different approach to thinking about these issues. But but how how do we? I mean, we obviously at the heart of this whole story are these characters that they have loosely called the cowboys, the contractors, mm-hmm. and it's in in. I'm just trying to get a handle on this, Jack Blum. If uh, I mean, it's as though the CIA is a, is a, is saying where they're just the piano player in the whorehouse. You know, they have they have insulation. Who actually hires these people? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the, the logic of how it happens, I think, is obvious and straightforward. 
people are sent to wherever they're sent, and they're told, you have a job to do. Uh, you have to find people who will do it. And if you're trying to find people to do that kind of job, uh, you're going to look around for someone who's willing to do something that's illegal, because after all, flying weapons to a covert war is not legal. Someone who's willing to take tremendous risks for money. Uh, someone who is uh, able to get around the rules and regulations where they're playing. Now, the man you've just sent out to do this is maybe risking his life for his country and doing something he thinks is his patriotic assignment. But the guy he's going to reach out for, for the help, is likely going to be someone connected with the criminal world or the underworld. Now, you cannot expect that when you're dealing with those people, you'll get them to only do what you want them to do. Any police officer who's ever run an informant can tell you how difficult it is to keep the informant from committing crimes while he's working for the police. And that's a terrible problem that covert operations confront. Uh, it requires very good management. It requires very close supervision, if it should be done at all, ever. Uh, in this case, there was no management, no supervision, and uh, it got totally and completely out of control. And in in effect, though it it didn't didn't uh, the uh, the Reagan White House, particularly Colonel North, uh, particularly when the when uh, during the Boland Amendment period, they and and we saw the whole testimony in the in the Iran Contra hearing. Mm-hmm. They talked about having this off the shelf, independent the enterprise. Um, so the the enterprise was run and managed by a group of people who were at best incompetent. Uh, and uh, at worst, incredibly dangerous to themselves and to the American national interest. And the idea that you could take what what is already a dubious proposition, which is having our government people running it, and then turn it over to a combination of amateurs and has-beens and private contractors and expect that the whole thing not turn totally catastrophic is a folly. But the, the, one of the reasons the government, there was resist. I mean, North North. And and Hakim, I can't remember their names now. Secord Hakim, I think his name was. Yeah. They were boasting in front of the United States Senate uh, that 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 you know that the, the professionals, the CIA, were just too conservative, and that what the country really needed was was this sort of swashbuckling buccaneers. You know. I mean, well, <laughs> the problem here is that uh, if you have a swashbuckling buccaneer who has it in his head what the idea of the national interest is, and he goes off and swashes and buckles, if you will, uh, what you've done is you've given up on democracy. Uh, the whole idea of the way our government works is no individual may ever go off into the night and say, I feel like doing this, I'm going to do it. Uh, everybody from the president up and down is sworn to uphold the law. After all, that's why we call it an administration. And uh, they are subject to political checks and balances. Uh, what we had here were a group of people who said, we're not interested in that. We really don't care about the Constitution. We figured out what the national interest is, and by God, if there's nobody else with the courage to go out and do it our way, we're going to do it, and, and the devil take them. Well, uh, you, you, that's just not the Constitution of the United States, and thank you. I think that they uh, have to be brought up short. We do have a, a very, very good form of government. And uh, many of us uh, have on occasion sworn to uh, give our lives to defend it. 
And uh, I think that uh, it merits that kind of defense. And I think the people who uh, went off as cowboys did us an enormous disservice. Well, but the cowboys, to some extent, at least uh, one group of them, were, were organized by Oliver North. And in your testimony, you said you made the extraordinary point that still to this day, nobody's been, and the Senate Select Intelligence Committee still has these original diaries, apparently. Nobody's looked at the original diaries. He was given the extraordinary privilege of being able to censor them himself. Well, here's, here's the history of those diaries, which I think most people don't know about. Oliver North, day by day, kept spiral-bound notebooks in which he kept a detailed record of his meetings, his telephone conversations, and what he was doing. And this is as good a contemporaneous record of everything the man was into as you'll ever find. When he was fired, finally fired, he collected all of these spiral-bound notebooks and hauled them out of the White House with him. Now, those notebooks were, uh, when, when the investigators became aware of their existence, were immediately classified at the highest levels of U.S. security classification, the so-called code word compartmented, secret compartmented information. And yet North and his lawyers were permitted to keep the notebooks. Moreover, the lawyers uh, cut an arrangement with the Iran-Contra Committee uh, that the only parts of the notebooks they would turn over to the Iran-Contra Committee were those which were, quote, relevant and the people who determined the relevance were North's lawyers. The uh, counsel for the Iran-Contra Committee and uh, some staff looked at the originals for a brief period and uh, signed off on the fact that they would only receive the parts that had been disclosed by the lawyers. The problem was you couldn't possibly know what you were looking at until you'd studied it in detail. It took me two days to get used to his handwriting the point where I could read them coherently. So uh, the Senate counsel and the House counsel of the Iran-Contra Committee never really understood what it was they were giving up when they said, we'll take an edited version. Now, when we uh, got into the investigation, we subpoenaed North for the originals. His lawyers fought the Foreign Relations Committee tooth and nail. There were members of the Foreign Relations Committee who said, well, we shouldn't push it. The government could never answer for the benefit of the committee why they permitted this top-secret information done on government time with government money, government notebooks, to wind up in private hands uh, outside of the reach of the Senate committee. Uh, I think that North's notebooks should be obtained, should be examined, and should be completely declassified. I think that it would be a great service to the understanding of what should never again occur in foreign policy, to have that record absolutely open and absolutely public. But aren't there an, an, a huge number of references to drug trafficking? There are quite a number of references to drug trafficking in the notebooks. Mm. And uh, there are times when the references are uh, most extraordinary. For example, conversations with Noriega, the allusions to drug problems on the Southern Front. Uh, and there are times when there are references or there were memoranda or prof notes relating to drug problems that were cooked essentially to destroy uh, people who were in the way, people who North or others wanted out of the picture.
because they were a threat, either they were supplying weapons at a competitive price or they were doing something that North didn't like. So the, the drug problem became a two-edged sword. Sometimes he took advantage of it, sometimes he tarred people with it uh, uh, improperly. But no, at no time did he report it, and, and uh, indeed there was hearings, you know, that uh, Congressman Hughes of the House Judiciary Committee held into the fact that North leaked uh, information, uh, photographs of Barry Seal, mm -hmm. who was an undercover well, pilot. You know, when you say that North never reported it, remember North was working at the National Security Council and he did report it to the National Security Advisor to the President. Mm -hmm. The question one is compelled to ask is, how much higher do you have to report it? Mm -hmm. And what exactly does it take for somebody to say the government knew? Uh, if North knew and he told Poindexter, uh, that is as close to the top of the pyramid of the American government as anybody can possibly get. Uh, and, and I think it's disingenuous to say the government didn't know because they, in fact, were the government. Well, then how do you feel, though, in terms of North's culpability? I mean, in the best of all possible worlds, it seems to me that he was never really tried. He was given tremendous privileges. And, and he, not only was he allowed to skate, but uh, the people at the very top who should have known uh, had their uh, convictions and their prosecutions overturned. Uh, you do remember that our uh, Secretary of Defense was uh, uh, pardoned by uh, by the President as he was about to be indicted, which was a most extraordinary situation. Uh, and that got very little attention. I think people were not focused on how bad a mess that was. And I really blame the uh, Democratic Party for not making enough of an issue of it and for not focusing it enough, there was a real reluctance on the part of people, and I don't understand why, to take the issue on and really expose the degree to which the government had gone a-constitutional, had forgotten about the procedures and methods laid out in law, and uh, simply done what it felt like. And I think the, the Weinberger problem uh, is illustrative of how far off the rails we got. Well, Jack Blum, just, just in the last few minutes, you, you uh, uh, in your testimony uh, a little over a week ago before the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, um, where you recounted your efforts in, in 1988 and 1989 uh, to, to uncover uh, the, the activities of, of drug trafficking in, in the Contra movement on the subcommittee on narcotics terrorism and in, in international operations. You also mentioned that just every time you would find uh, find out about uh, some nefarious character that was operating either semi-officially, officially, or or, uh, or just sort of uh, hitching a ride in this climate that we've talked about that was created down there, um, that you kept being blocked by the, the head of the criminal division at the Justice Department, William Weld, who incidentally mm -hmm. is running in a very tight race against John Kerry, who was the uh, chair of the... Uh, the, the committee that you were investigating. and, and well, We ran into situations like this. There was an assistant United States attorney that reported uh, uh, to uh, Senator Kerry that he had overheard a conversation in which uh, a U.S. attorney was being instructed to, uh, in effect, uh, kill a case because the case might interfere with the Contra operation. Uh, that assistant U.S. attorney was disciplined and his career was ruined. 
other situations where I was told uh, that there were assistants who were working on cases and the cases had been uh, uh, shut down, in effect, because uh, of the connections with the Contra War. When we tried to get those people to talk, they said they'd been told flat out that if they told us anything in an on-the-record way, that their careers at the Justice Department and after would be ruined. Uh, it's that kind of stuff that turned up again and again and again. It was, uh, how do we prevent uh, Congress from finding out? Now, I, I said to Senator Specter that, in fact, if you ask me the question, can I say for sure that certain kinds of covert operations were uh, sanctioned and that uh, the government knew, the answer is no. I didn't see the government's files. But on the other hand, can I say there were plenty of people who told me what was going on, and so many, and it came from so many different directions. I was pretty sure that I was right. Uh, that's a different matter, and uh, I was pretty sure that I was right. Uh, the difficulty, of course, is that uh, truth becomes whatever someone arguing one side of the case or the other would like it to be. So the standard that was set by the people who were trying to cover everything up was, tell us what's in our secret files, Tell us that without your ever being allowed to have access to them. And by the way, prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that everybody who you've talked to is telling the truth. Uh, and against that standard, you really have one very difficult time. But I would turn around and say, excuse me, gentlemen, why don't you just open your eyes and look around? Uh, here are the things we can look at and know uh, based on the absolutely obvious. Uh, drug traffickers living openly in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Uh, generals are protecting him. He's renting a home to the U.S. ambassador. Everybody knows he's there. And our government mysteriously decides to close the DEA office in Honduras. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I don't have to read the secret papers. I have a pretty good idea why that office was closed. And later on, we talked to the DEA agent. He said, I couldn't understand it. All I knew was that the problem was in Honduras. It wasn't in Guatemala where they sent me. So I, I was arguing there were plenty of ways to see this, and it was just a matter of looking at the obvious. Well, Jack Blum, I, I, I thank you very much for joining us. This is an extraordinary subject, and, and as I say, justice is, is long delayed and still denied. And, and um, I don't know if you're as frustrated as I am in the sense that I, I just wish that people would go back to the source and deal, and deal with these problems and, 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 and work their way up the, the problem and, and deal with it in general because, as you pointed out in the beginning, this is the real national security threat of the present and the future. I think that what we have to do is get people to realize that foreign and domestic policy increasingly are the same thing. That the way we deal with foreign policy colors the way we deal with domestic issues, and that it's time to put a lot more of this in the open and on the table uh, and to talk about it and make it part of our overall political debate. I think the time for the level of secrecy we had in the Cold War period is over. The kind of uh, operations we had in the Cold War period is over, and we need to, to create a new climate in which this takes place, and that requires very major rethinking of the way we go about our business, and to date, I haven't seen it. I'd very much like to see it, and I'd like to see the debate joined. It shouldn't be my voice alone. There are plenty of people who have other ideas, uh, people who disagree with me. I think the debate would be very, very healthy. 
I thank you for joining us in Los Angeles, Jack Blum. Thank you. Bye-bye. And hello again, I'm Ian Masters. I was just speaking then with Jack Blum, who for 14 years was the special counsel to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he was the chief investigator for the Senate Subcommittee on Narcotics, Terrorism, and International Operations in 1988. And we were talking about his recent testimony before the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence um, about a week and a half ago, where he testified and laid out a broader canvas uh, these hearings, of course, were, were held in response to the articles by uh, Gary Webb and the San Jose Mercury News, which um, have been largely panned in by the mainstream press. But, as I say, Jack Blum's uh, experience and scope and understanding of the, of the genesis and of the problem and uh, the broader canvas uh, remains uh, undiscussed in the, the broader issues that he talked about uh, have yet to be debated. I thank uh, Madeline Schwab for the board operating. This program is heard live every Sunday at 11 and rebroadcast on Monday at 2 p.m. I'll be back again next Sunday at 11. Have a very pleasant week. Bye. Here is the report authored by the Senate Committee, chaired by Senator John Kerry. Narcotics Traffickers and the Contras. Introduction. The initial committee investigation into the international drug trade, which began in April 1986, focused on allegations that Senator John F. Kerry had received of illegal gun running and narcotics trafficking associated with the Contra War against Nicaragua. As the committee proceeded with its investigation, significant information began surfacing concerning the operations of international narcotics traffickers, particularly relating to the Colombian-based cocaine cartels. As a result, the decision was made to incorporate the Contra-related allegations into a broader investigation concerning the relationship between foreign policy, narcotics trafficking, and law enforcement. While the Contra drug question was not the primary focus of the investigation, the subcommittee uncovered considerable evidence relating to the Contra network 
which substantiated many of the initial allegations laid out before the committee in the spring of 1986. On the basis of this evidence, it is clear that individuals who provided support for the Contras were involved in drug trafficking, the supply network of the Contras was used by drug trafficking organizations, and elements of the Contras themselves knowingly received financial and material assistance from drug traffickers. In each case, one or another agency of the U.S. government had information regarding the involvement either while it was occurring or immediately thereafter. The subcommittee found that the Contra drug links included involvement in narcotics trafficking by individuals associated with the Contra movement, participation of narcotics traffickers in Contra supply operations through business relationships with Contra organizations, provision of assistance to the Contras by narcotics traffickers, including cash, weapons, planes, pilots, air supply services, and other materials on a voluntary basis by the traffickers. Payments to drug traffickers by the U.S. State Department of funds authorized by the Congress for humanitarian assistance to the Contras, in some cases after the traffickers had been indicted by federal law enforcement agencies on drug charges, and others while traffickers were under active investigation by these same agencies. These activities were carried out in connection with Contra activities in both Costa Rica and Honduras. The subcommittee found that the links that were forged between the Contras and the drug traffickers were primarily pragmatic rather than ideological. The drug traffickers, who had significant financial and material resources, needed the cover of legitimate activity for their criminal enterprises. A trafficker like George Morales hoped to have his drug indictment dropped in return for his financial and material support of the Contras. Others, in the words of Marcos Aguado, Eden Pastora's Air Force chief, quote, took advantage of the anti-communist sentiment which existed in Central America, and they undoubtedly used it for drug trafficking, end quote. While for some Contras it was a matter of survival, for the traffickers, it was just another business deal to promote and protect their own operations. 2. The Executive Branch Response to Contra Drug Charges In the wake of press accounts concerning links between the Contras and drug traffickers, beginning December 1985 with a story by the Associated Press, both houses of the Congress began to raise questions about the drug-related allegations associated with the Contras, causing a review in the spring of 1986 of the allegations by the State Department, in conjunction with the Justice Department and relevant U.S. intelligence agencies. Following that review, the State Department told the Congress in April 1986 that it had at that time, quote, evidence of a limited number of incidents in which known drug traffickers tried to establish connections with Nicaraguan resistance groups, end quote. According to the department, quote, these attempts, for the most part, took place during the period when the resistance was receiving no U.S. funding and was particularly hard-pressed for financial support, end quote. The report acknowledged that, quote, drug traffickers were attempting to exploit the desperate conditions, 
end quote, in which the Contras found themselves. The department had suggested that while individual members of the Contra movement might have been involved, their drug trafficking was, quote, without the authorization of resistance leaders, end quote. Following further press reports linking Contra supply operations to narcotics and inquiries from the Foreign Relations Committee to the State Department concerning these links, the State Department issued a second statement to the Congress concerning the allegations on July 24, 1986. In this report, the State Department said, quote, The available evidence points to involvement with drug traffickers by a limited number of persons having various kinds of affiliations with or political sympathies for the resistance groups, end quote. A year later, in August 1987, the CIA's Central American Task Force chief became the first U.S. official to revise that assessment to suggest instead that the links between Contras on the Southern Front in Costa Rica to narcotics trafficking was in fact far broader than that acknowledged by the State Department in 1986. Appearing before the Iran-Contra committees, the CIA Central American Task Force chief testified, quote, With respect to drug trafficking by the resistance forces, it is not a couple of people. It is a lot of people, end quote. The CIA's chief of the Central American Task Force went on to say, quote, we knew that everybody around Pastora was involved in cocaine. His staff and friends, redacted, they were drug smugglers or involved in drug smuggling. End quote. The Justice Department was slow to respond to the allegations regarding links between drug traffickers and the Contras. In the spring of 1986, even after the State Department was acknowledging there were problems with drug trafficking in association with Contra activities on the Southern Front, the Justice Department was adamantly denying that there was any substance to the narcotics allegations. At the time, the FBI had significant information regarding the involvement of narcotics traffickers in Contra operations and Neutrality Act violations. The failure of U.S. law enforcement and intelligence agencies to respond properly to allegations concerning criminal activity relating to the Contras was demonstrated by the handling of the committee's own investigation by the Justice Department and the CIA in the spring of 1986. On May 6, 1986, a bipartisan group of committee staff met with representatives of the Justice Department, FBI, DEA, CIA, and State Department to discuss the allegations that Senator Kerry had received information of Neutrality Act violations, gun running, and drug trafficking in association with Contra organizations based on the Southern Front in Costa Rica. In the days leading up to the meeting, Justice Department spokesmen were stating publicly that, quote, the FBI had conducted an inquiry into all of these charges, and none of them have any substance. End quote. At that meeting, Justice Department officials privately contradicted the numerous public statements from the department that these allegations had been investigated thoroughly and were determined to be without foundation. The Justice Department officials at the meeting said the public statements by Justice were inaccurate. The Justice officials confirmed there were ongoing Neutrality Act investigations in connection with the allegations raised by Senator Kerry. 
At the same meeting, representatives of the CIA categorically denied that the Neutrality Act violations raised by the committee staff had in fact taken place, citing classified documents which the CIA did not make available to the committee. In fact, at the time, the FBI had already assembled substantial information confirming the Neutrality Act violations, including admissions by some of the persons involved indicating that crimes had taken place. In August 1986, Senator Richard Lugar, then chairman of the committee, and the ranking member, Senator Claiborne Pell, wrote the Justice Department requesting information on 27 individuals and organizations associated with the Contras concerning allegations of their involvement in narcotics trafficking and illegal gun running. The Justice Department refused to provide any information in response to this request on the grounds that the information remained under active investigation and that the committee's, quote, rambling through open investigations gravely risks compromising those efforts, end quote. On October 5, 1988, the subcommittee received sworn testimony from the Miami prosecutor handling the neutrality and gun-running cases that he had been advised that some officials in the Justice Department had met in 1986 to discuss how to undermine Senator Kerry's attempts to have hearings regarding the allegations. The subcommittee took a number of depositions of Justice Department personnel involved in responding to the committee investigation or in prosecuting allegations stemming from the committee's investigation. Each denied participating in any agreement to obstruct or interfere with a congressional investigation. In order to place in their proper perspective the attempts to interfere with or undermine the committee investigation, a lengthy chronology has been prepared, which appears at Appendix A of this report. 3. The Guns and Drug Smuggling Infrastructure Develops Covert war, insurgency, and drug trafficking frequently go hand-in-hand hand without regard to ideology or sponsorship. General Paul Gorman testified that the use of narcotics profits by armed resistance groups was commonplace. Gorman stated further that, quote, if you want to move arms or munitions in Latin America, the established networks are owned by the cartels. It has lent itself to the purposes of terrorists, of saboteurs, of spies, of insurgents, and subversives, end quote. DEA Assistant Administrator David Westrate said of the Nicaraguan War, quote, It is true that people on both sides of the equation in the Nicaraguan War were drug traffickers, and a couple of them were pretty significant. End quote. Drug trafficking associated with revolution in Nicaragua began during the late 1970s with the Sandinistas' attempt to overthrow the regime of Anastasio Somoza de Baile. At the time, the Sandinistas were supported by most governments in the region. Those governments helped provide the FSLN with the money, weapons, and the sanctuary they needed to overthrow Somoza. Costa Rica, which has dozens of unsupervised airstrips near the Nicaraguan border, became an important supply and staging area for the Sandinistas. These airstrips were used by Noriega and others for shipments of weapons to the Sandinistas. 
Former senior Costa Rican law enforcement officials told the subcommittee they were instructed to keep their narcotics investigators away from the Nicaraguan border during the Sandinista Revolution. Even when they had received hard information about drugs on the aircraft delivering weapons, the officials, in effort to avoid controversy regarding the war, ignored the tips and let the flights go. A number of Costa Ricans became suppliers for the Sandinistas. These included Jaime Pique Guerra, who owned a crop dusting service and a related aircraft support business in northern Costa Rica. Guerra refueled and repaired the planes which came from Panama loaded with Cuban weapons for the Sandinistas. Guerra's crop dusting business was excellent cover for the movement of aviation fuel to the dozens of remote airstrips they used without arousing the suspicions of Costa Rican authorities. When the Sandinista insurgency succeeded in 1979, smuggling activity in northern Costa Rica did not stop. Surplus weapons originally stored in Costa Rica for use by the Sandinistas were sold on the black market in the region. Some of these weapons were shipped to the Salvadoran rebels from the same airstrips in the same planes flown by the same pilots who had previously worked for the Sandinistas. Costa Rican law enforcement authorities said that the drug trafficking through northern Costa Rica continued as well. They said that their police units lacked the men, the communications equipment, and the transport to close down the airstrips and seize weapons and drugs. Werner Lotz, a Costa Rican pilot serving sentence for drug smuggling, testified that there was little the Costa Rican government could do to deal with the continuing drug trafficking. Quote, Costa Rica has got only civil guards, underpaid and easily bought. To be very clear, our guard down there is barefoot, and you're talking about 50 men to cover 400 kilometers, maybe. End quote. Four, drug trafficking and the covert war. When the Southern Front against the Sandinista government in Nicaragua was established in 1983, Costa Rica remained ill-equipped to deal with the threat posed by the Colombian drug cartels. Then, as now, the country does not have a military, its law enforcement resources remain limited, and its radar system still so poor that Contra supply planes could fly in and out of the clandestine strips without being detected. Following their work on behalf of the Sandinistas and the Salvadoran rebels, the Colombian and Panamanian drug operatives were well positioned to exploit the infrastructure now serving and supplying the Contra Southern Front. This infrastructure was increasingly important to the drug traffickers, as this was the very period in which the cocaine trade to the U.S. from Latin America was growing exponentially. In the words of Carol Prado, an officer of the Arde Contra organization of Eden Pastora on the Southern Front, quote, drug traffickers approaches political groups like Arde trying to make deals that would somehow camouflage or cover up their activities, end quote. The head of the Costa Rican Air Force and personal pilot to two Costa Rican presidents, Werner Lotz, explained the involvement of drug traffickers with the Contras in the early days of the establishment of the Southern Front as a consequence of the Contras' lack of resources. Quote, There was no money. 
There were too many leaders and too few people to follow them, and everybody was trying to make money as best they could. End quote. The logic of having drug money pay for the pressing needs of the Contras appealed to a number of people who became involved in the covert war. Indeed, senior U.S. policymakers were not immune to the idea that drug money was a perfect solution to the Contras' funding problems. As DEA officials testified last July before the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North suggested to the DEA in June 1985 that $1.5 million in drug money carried aboard a plane piloted by DEA informant Barry Seal and generated in a sting of the Medellin cartel and Sandinista officials be provided to the Contras. While the suggestion was rejected by the DEA, the fact that it was made highlights the potential appeal of drug profits for persons engaged in covert activity. Lotz said that Contra operations on the Southern Front were in fact funded by drug operations. He testified that weapons for the Contras came from Panama on small planes carrying mixed loads which included drugs. The pilots unloaded the weapons, refueled, and headed north toward the U.S. with drugs. The pilots included Americans, Panamanians, and Colombians, and occasionally uniformed members of the Panamanian Defense Forces. Drug pilots soon began to use the Contra airstrips to refuel even when there were no weapons to unload. They knew that the authorities would not check the airstrips because the war was protected. The problem of drug traffickers using the airstrips also used to supply the Contras persisted through 1985 and 1986. By the summer of 1986, it became of significant concern to the U.S. government officials who were involved in the covert Contra supply operations undertaken during the Boland Amendment period. As then-CIA Station Chief Thomas Castillo testified to the Iran-Contra committees, U.S. Ambassador to Costa Rica Louis Tams wanted to place guards on the secret Contra supply airstrip at Santa Elena in Costa Rica to avoid, quote, having drug traffickers use that site, and this was a continuing concern during the period of June, July, and August, end quote. The concern highlights the degree to which the infrastructure used by the Contras and that used by drug traffickers was potentially interchangeable, even in a situation in which the U.S. government had itself established and maintained the airstrip involved. 5. The Pilots Pilots who made combined contra-weapons drug flights through the Southern Front included Gerardo Duran, a Costa Rican pilot in the airplane parts supply business. Duran flew for a variety of Contra organizations on the Southern Front, including those affiliated with Alfonso Robello, Fernando El Negro Chamorro, and Eden Pastora, before U.S. officials insisted that the Contras sever their ties from Duran because of his involvement with drugs. Duran was convicted of narcotics trafficking in Costa Rica in 1987 and jailed. Gary Wayne Betzner drug pilot who worked for convicted smuggler George Morales. Betzner testified that twice in 1984, he flew weapons for the Contras from the U.S. to northern Costa Rica, 
and returned to the United States with loads of cocaine. Betzner is presently serving a lengthy prison term for drug smuggling. Jose Chapon Robello, the head of UDN-FARN Air Force on the Southern Front. Robello turned to narcotics trafficking and reselling goods provided to the Contras by the U.S. 6. U.S. Government Funds and Companies with Drug Connections The State Department selected four companies owned and operated by narcotics traffickers to supply humanitarian assistance to the Contras. The companies were Setco Air, a company established by Honduran drug trafficker Ramon Mata Ballesteros, Diaxa, a Miami-based air company operated as the headquarters of a drug trafficker enterprise for convicted drug traffickers Floyd Carlton and Alfredo Caballero. Frigeríficos de Puntarenas, a firm owned and operated by Cuban-American drug traffickers. Vortex, an air service and supply company partly owned by admitted drug trafficker Michael Palmer. In each case, Prior to the time that the State Department entered into contracts with the company, federal law enforcement had received information that the individuals controlling these companies were involved in narcotics. Officials at NHAO told GAO investigators that all the supply contractors were to have been screened by U.S. intelligence and law enforcement agencies prior to their receiving funds from State Department on behalf of the Contras to ensure that they were not involved with criminal activity. Neither the GAO nor the NHAO were certain whether or not that had actually been done. The payments made by the State Department to these four companies between January and August 1986 were as follows. Setco, for air transport services, $185,924.25. For airplane engine parts, $41,120.90. Frigeríficos de Puntarenas, as a broker supplier for various services to Contras on the Southern Front, $261,932. Vortex, for air transport services, $317,425.17. Total, $806,401.20. A number of questions arise as a result of the selection of these four companies by the State Department for the provision of humanitarian assistance to the Contras, to which the subcommittee has been unable to obtain clear answers. Who selected these firms to provide services to the Contras, paid for with public funds, and what criteria were used for selecting them? Were any U.S. officials in the CIA, NSC, or State Department aware of the narcotics allegations associated with any of these companies? If so, why were these firms permitted to receive public funds on behalf of the Contras? Why were Contra suppliers not checked against federal law enforcement records that would have shown them to be either under active investigation as drug traffickers or, in the case of Diaxa, actually under indictment? Ambassador Robert Doomling director of the Nicaraguan Humanitarian Assistance Organization, NHAO, who was responsible for the operation of the program, was unable to recall how these companies were selected when questioned by Senator Kerry in April 1988. Ambassador Doomling 
also could not recall whether or not the contractors had in fact been checked against law enforcement records prior to receiving funds from the State Department. In previous testimony before the Iran-Contra committees, Ambassador Doomling had recalled that NHAO had been directed by Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North to continue, quote, the existing arrangements of the resistance movement, end quote, in choosing contractors. At best, these incidents represent negligence on the part of U.S. government officials responsible for providing support to the Contras. At worst, it was a matter of turning a blind eye to the activities of companies who use legitimate activities as a cover for their narcotics trafficking. A. Setco, Hondu Karib. Before being chosen by the State Department to transport goods on behalf of the Contras from late 1985 through mid-1986, Setco had a long-standing relationship with the largest of the Contra groups, the Honduras-based FDN. Beginning in 1984, Setco was the principal company used by the Contras in Honduras to transport supplies and personnel for the FDN, carrying at least a million rounds of ammunition, food, uniforms, and other military supplies for the Contras from 1983 through 1985. According to testimony before the Iran-Contra committees by FDN leader Adolfo Calero, Setco received funds for Contra supply operations from the Contra accounts established by Oliver North. U.S. law enforcement records state that Setco was established by Honduran cocaine trafficker Juan Mata Ballesteros, whose 1988 extradition from Honduras to the United States in connection with drug trafficking charges caused riots outside the U.S. Embassy in Tegucigalpa. For example, a 1983 Customs Investigative Report states that, quote, Setco stands for Services Ejectivos Turistas Commander and is headed by Juan Ramon Mata Ballesteros, a Class I DEA violator, end quote. The same report states that, according to the Drug Enforcement Agency, quote, Setco Aviation is a corporation formed by American businessmen who are dealing with Mata and are smuggling narcotics into the United States, end quote. One of the pilots selected to fly Contra supply missions for the FDN for Setco was Frank Moss, who has been under investigation as an alleged drug trafficker since 1979. Moss has been investigated, although never indicted, for narcotics offenses by 10 different law enforcement agencies. In addition to flying Contra supply missions through Setco, Moss formed his own company in 1985, Hondu Karib, which also flew supplies to the Contras, including weapons and ammunition purchased from RM Equipment, an arms company controlled by Ronald Martin and James McCoy. The FDN's arrangement with Moss and Hondu Karib was pursuant to a commercial agreement between the FDN's chief supply officer, Mario Calero, and Moss, under which Calero was to receive an ownership interest in Moss's company. The subcommittee received documentation that one Moss plane, a DC-4 N90201, was used to move Contra goods from the United States to Honduras. On the basis of information alleging that the plane was being used for drug smuggling, 
the Customs Service obtained a court order to place a concealed transponder on the plane. A second DC-4, controlled by Moss, was chased off the west coast of Florida by the Customs Service while it was dumping what appeared to be a load of drugs, according to law enforcement personnel. When the plane landed at Port Charlotte, no drugs were found on board, but the plane's registration was not in order, and its last known owners were drug traffickers. Law enforcement personnel also found an address book aboard the plane, containing, among other references, the telephone numbers of some Contra officials and the Virginia telephone number of Robert Owen, Oliver North's courier. A law enforcement inspection of the plane revealed the presence of significant marijuana residue. DEA seized the aircraft on March 16, 1987. B. Frigoríficos de Puntarenas Frigoríficos de Puntarenas is a Costa Rican seafood company which was created as a cover for the laundering of drug money, according to grand jury testimony by one of its partners and testimony by Ramon Milian Rodriguez, the convicted money launderer who established the company. From its creation, it was operated and owned by Luis Rodriguez of Miami, Florida, and Carlos Soto and Ubaldo Fernandez, two convicted drug traffickers, to launder drug money. Luis Rodriguez, who, according to Massachusetts law enforcement officials, directed the largest marijuana smuggling ring in the history of the state, was indicted on drug trafficking charges by the federal government on September 30, 1987, and on tax evasion in connection with the laundering of money through Ocean Hunter on April 5, 1988. Luis Rodriguez controlled the bank account held in the name of Frigoríficos, which received $261,937 in humanitarian assistance funds from the State Department in 1986. Rodriguez signed most of the orders to transfer the funds for the Contras out of that account. Rodriguez was also president of Ocean Hunter, an American seafood company created for him by Ramon Milian Rodriguez. Ocean Hunter imported seafood it bought from Frigoríficos and used the intercompany transactions to launder drug money. In statements before a Florida federal grand jury in connection with a narcotics trafficking prosecution of Luis Rodriguez, Soto testified that he knew Luis Rodriguez as a narcotics trafficker who had been smuggling drugs into the U.S. since 1979. Soto also testified that they were partners in the shipment of 35,000 pounds of marijuana to Massachusetts in 1982. Milian Rodriguez told federal authorities about Luis Rodriguez's narcotics trafficking prior to Milian Rodriguez's arrest in May 1983. In March and April 1984, IRS agents interviewed Luis Rodriguez regarding Ocean Hunter, drug trafficking, and money laundering, and he took the Fifth Amendment in response to every question. In September 1984, Miami police officials advised the FBI of information they had received that Ocean Hunter was funding Contra activities through narcotics transactions, and noting that Luis Rodriguez was its president. This information confirmed previous accounts the FBI had received concerning the involvement of Ocean Hunter and its officers in Contra supply operations involving the Cuban-American community. Despite the information possessed by the FBI, Customs, 
and other law enforcement agencies documenting Luis Rodriguez's involvement in narcotics trafficking and money laundering, the State Department used Frigorificos, which he owned and operated, to deliver humanitarian assistance funds to the Contras in late 1985. Official funds for the Contras from the United States began to be deposited into the Frigorificos account in early 1986 and continued until mid-1986. In May 1986, Senator Kerry advised the Justice Department, Drug Enforcement Agency, State Department, NHAO, and CIA of allegations he had received involving Luis Rodriguez and his companies in drug trafficking and money laundering. In August 1986, the Foreign Relations Committee asked Justice whether the allegations about Luis Rodriguez were true and requested documents to determine whether the State Department might have, in fact, provided funds to a company controlled by drug traffickers. Justice refused to answer the inquiry. The indictment of Luis Rodriguez on drug charges 18 months later demonstrated that the concerns raised by Senator Kerry to the Justice Department and other agencies in May 1986 concerning his companies were well-founded, as the State Department had, in fact, chosen companies operated by drug traffickers to supply the Contras. C. Diaxa Diaxa was an aircraft dealership and part supply company partly owned by the Guerra family of Costa Rica. Diaxa's president, Alfredo Caballero, was under DEA investigation for cocaine trafficking and money laundering when the State Department chose the company to be an NHAO supplier. Caballero was at that time a business associate of Floyd Carlton, the pilot who flew cocaine for Panama's General Noriega. In an affidavit filed in federal court in January 1985, DEA Special Agent Daniel E. Moritz described working as an undercover money launderer, quote, for the purpose of introducing myself into a criminal organization involved in importing substantial quantities of cocaine into the United States from South America, end quote. That organization was the Carlton Caballero Partnership. According to Agent Moritz, the cocaine traffickers used Diaxa offices, quote, as a location for planning smuggling ventures, for assembling and distributing large cash proceeds of narcotics transactions, and for placing telephone calls in furtherance of the smuggling ventures, end quote. From March 1985 until January 1986, Moritz received approximately $3.8 million in U.S. currency from members of this organization, quote, to be distributed, primarily in the form of wire transfers around the world, end quote. Most of the $3.8 million was delivered in Diaxa's offices. Moritz met both Alfredo Caballero and Floyd Carlton in March of 1985. Moritz had previously learned from a confidential informant that Carlton was a, quote, major cocaine trafficker from Panama who frequented Diaxa and was a close associate of Alfredo Caballero, end quote. The informant added that, quote, Caballero provided aircraft for Floyd Carlton Casares's cocaine smuggling ventures, end quote, and that Caballero allowed Carlton and, quote, members of his organization to use Diaxa offices as a location for planning smuggling ventures, 
for assembling and distributing large cash proceeds of narcotics transactions and for placing telephone calls in furtherance of the smuggling ventures, end quote. Alfredo Caballero was described by the informant, quote, as the man in charge of operations for Floyd Carlton Casares Cocaine Transportation Organization, end quote. Other members of the group were Miguel Alemene Soto, who recruited pilots and selected aircraft and landing strips, and Cecilia Sanz Barria. The confidential informant said that Sanz was a Panamanian, quote, in charge of supervising the landing and refueling of the organization's aircraft at airstrips on the Panama-Costa Rica border, end quote, and that he, quote, arranges for bribe payments for certain Costa Rican officials to ensure the protection of these aircraft as they head north loaded with cocaine, end quote. During 1984 and 1985, the principal Contra organization, the FDN, chose DIAXA for intra-account transfers. The laundering of money through DIAXA concealed the fact that some funds for the Contras were through deposits arranged by Lt. Col. Oliver North. The indictments of Carlton, Caballero, and five other defendants, including Alfred Caballero's son, Luis, were handed down on January 23, 1985. The indictment charged the defendants with bringing into the United States on or about September 23, 1985, 900 pounds of cocaine. In addition, the indictment charged the defendants with laundering $2.6 million between March 25, 1985 and January 13, 1986. Despite the indictments, the State Department made payments on May 14, 1986 and September 3, 1986, totaling $41,120.90 to DIAXA to provide services to the Contras. In addition, the State Department was still doing business with DIAXA on its own behalf six months after the company's principals had been indicted. Court papers filed in the case in July 1986 show that the U.S. embassies of Panama and Costa Rica were clients of DIAXA. While DIAXA and its principals were engaged in plea bargaining negotiations with the Justice Department regarding the cocaine trafficking and money laundering charges, U.S. Embassy personnel in Panama and Costa Rica were meeting with one of the defendants to discuss purchasing Cessna planes from the company. Each of the defendants in the DIAXA case was ultimately convicted on charges of importing cocaine into the United States. The sentences they received ranged from 10 years for one non-cooperating defendant to nine years for Floyd Carlton to three years probation for Luis Caballero and five years probation for his father, Diax's owner, Alfredo Caballero, as a consequence of their cooperation with the government. D. Vortex when the State Department signed a contract with Vortex to handle Contra supplies, Michael B. Palmer, then the company's executive vice president, signed for Vortex. At the time, Palmer was under active investigation by the FBI in three jurisdictions in connection with his decade-long activity as a drug smuggler, and a federal grand jury was preparing to indict him in Detroit. The contract required Vortex to receive goods for the Contras, store, pack, and inventory them. 
At the time the contract was signed, Vortex's principal assets were two airplanes which Palmer previously used for drug smuggling. Vortex was selected by NHAO Assistant Director Philip Buschler, following calls among Buschler, Palmer, and Pat Foley, the president of Summit Aviation. 7. The Case of George Morales and FRS Arday in 1984, the Contra forces under Eden Pastora were in an increasingly hopeless situation. On May 30, 1984, Pastora was wounded by... On May 30, 1984, Pastora was wounded by a bomb at his base camp at La Penca, Nicaragua, close to the Costa Rica border. That same day, according to Arde officer Carol Prado, aid to Arde from the United States was cut off. Despite continued pressure from the United States, Pastora refused to place his Arde forces under a unified command with the largest of the Contra organizations, the Honduras-based FDN. The CIA considered Pastora to be disruptive and unpredictable. By the time the Boland Amendment cut off legal military aid to the Contras, the CIA had seen to it that Pastora did not receive any assistance and his forces were experiencing desperate conditions. Although there are discrepancies among the parties as to when the initial meeting took place, Pastora's organization was approached by George Morales, a Colombian drug trafficker living in Miami who had been indicted on narcotics trafficking charges. According to the State Department report to the Congress of July 26, 1986, quote, information developed by the intelligence community indicates that a senior member of Eden Pastora's Sandino Revolutionary Front, FRS, agreed in late 1984 with Morales that FRS pilots would aid in transporting narcotics in exchange for financial assistance. The FRS official agreed to use FRS operational facilities in Costa Rica and Nicaragua to facilitate transportation of narcotics. Morales agreed to provide financial support to the FRS, in addition to aircraft and training for FRS pilots. After undergoing flight training, the FRS pilots were to continue to work for the FRS, but would also fly narcotics shipments from South America to sites in Costa Rica and Nicaragua for later transport to the United States. Shortly thereafter, Morales reportedly provided the FRS one C-47 aircraft and two crated helicopters. He is reported to have paid the sum of $100,000 to the FRS, but there was no information available on who actually received the money. End quote. The State Department said it was aware of only one incident of drug trafficking resulting from this agreement between the Contras and Morales, and that was the case of Contra pilot Gerardo Duran. Duran was arrested in January 1986 in Costa Rica for his involvement in transporting cocaine to the United States. Duran was an FRS pilot from 1982 to 1985 and operated an air taxi service in Costa Rica. According to Marco Aguado and Carol Prado, Duran would fly supplies to the Contras on the southern front, and he would charge for each flight. Robert Owen, 
courier for Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North testified to the Iran-Contra committees that he told North he thought Carol Prado was involved in trafficking drugs out of Panama and that Pastora's pilot, Marco Aguado, was also involved. The subcommittee was unable to validate Owen's claims. Prado vehemently denied these allegations, stating that he believed the drug trafficking allegations against Pastora were the result of a CIA effort to discredit him. Morales testified that his involvement with the Contras started in 1984 at the urging of Marta Healy, the widow of one of his drug pilots, Richard Healy. Marta Healy's first husband was Adolfo Popo Chamorro, the second-in-command to Eden Pastora in the FRS. She came from a prominent Nicaraguan family. At the time of his first contract, Morales was under indictment for marijuana smuggling. He testified that he thought by assisting the Contra cause, his indictment would be dropped. Marta Healy introduced Morales to Popo Chamorro, Marco Aguado, and Octaviano Cesar at a meeting in Miami. According to Morales, he wanted to make a deal. He would help the Contras with their needs and, quote, they in exchange would help me with my objective, which was solving my indictment, end quote. Morales believed the Contra leaders would help him solve his legal problems because of their contacts with the CIA. On October 31, 1987, in San Jose, Costa Rica, the subcommittee videotaped the depositions of three Contra leaders with intimate knowledge of the Morales relationship with Pastora's organization in video depositions. The three were Carol Prado, Pastora's head of communications, Marco Eguado, Pastora's Air Force chief, and Octaviano Cesar, who, along with his brother Alfredo, were political allies of Pastora's at the time. A fourth, Adolfo Popo Chamorro, who was Pastora's second-in-command in Arde, testified in closed session of the subcommittee in April 1988. Chamorro's testimony was taken in closed session by the consent of the subcommittee at his request. Dick McCall, of Senator Kerry's personal staff, in an arrangement worked out with Chamorro and his attorneys, subsequently interviewed him in Miami. Each denied knowing that Morales was under indictment for drug trafficking when they first met him at Marta Healy's house in Miami. Popo Chamorro said that, as far as he knew, Morales was just another rich Miami resident with strong anti-communist feelings. In addition, all three denied receiving more than $10,000 in cash from Morales. The subcommittee found that $10,000 was given to Popo Chamorro to cover the cost of transporting a C-47 owned by Morales, which he donated to Arde, from Haiti to Ilopango Air Force Base in El Salvador. While denying receiving funds personally, Prado, Aguado, and Cesar each confirmed elements of Morales' story. According to Prado, Octaviano Cesar and his brother Adolfo allied themselves politically with Pastora in the summer of 1984. A decision was then made to send Popo Chamorro and Octaviano Cesar to the United States to look for funds. In September, Popo Chamorro returned to Costa Rica with photographs of a DC-4 and a Howard plane and told Pastora that they would get six more planes, including a Navajo Panther from George Morales. 
Pastora told Chamorro that the C-47 was the most practical plane for the Contras at the time, and Popo returned to Miami to arrange for its transfer. Chamorro provided the subcommittee with an aircraft purchase order, dated October 1, 1984. The notarized purchase order provided that, for the sum of $1, a McDonnell Douglas DC-3, the civilian designation for a C-47, would be transferred to Marco Aguado. The order was signed by George Morales as the seller and by Marco Aguado as the purchaser. In addition, Chamorro gave the subcommittee a list of flights made by that 747 to ferry arms from Ilopango to Costa Rica and La Penca. Between October 18, 1984, and February 12, 1986, some 156,000 pounds of material were moved from Ilopango to airfields in Costa Rica. Of the 24 flights during this period, 11 were to La Penca on the Nicaraguan side of the Rio San Juan. The subcommittee substantiated key elements of the Morales story, although it did not find evidence that Cesar, Chamorro, or Prado were personally involved in drug trafficking. First, all witnesses agreed that Morales gave Arde a C-47. Evidence of an association between them is also provided by a customs document. This document, provided the committee by the U.S. Customs Service, shows that Morales entered the United States from the Bahamas on October 13, 1984, with Marco Aguado, Octaviano Cesar, and Popo Chamorro. They carried $400,000 in cash and checks, which were declared by Aguado, Chamorro, and Cesar. They claimed that the checks and money were returned to Morales after clearing customs. Aguado summarized the relationship between the Southern Front Contras and the drug traffickers in terms of the exploitation of the Contra movement by individuals involved in narcotic smuggling. According to Aguado, the trafficking organizations, quote, took advantage of the anti-communist sentiment which existed in Central America, and they undoubtedly used it for drug trafficking, end quote. Referring to the Contra resupply operations, Aguado said the traffickers used, quote, the same connections, the same airstrips, the same people. And maybe they said that it was weapons for Eden Pastora, and it was actually drugs that would later go on to the U.S. They fooled people. Unfortunately, this kind of activity, which is for the freeing of a people, is quite similar to the activities of the drug traffickers, end quote. Octaviano Cesar testified that when he dealt with Morales, he was, quote, thinking in terms of the security of my country. It just didn't enter my mind that I would become involved in such a mess because it never entered into my mind to get in that drug business. I went a couple of times inside in Nicaragua, and I saw people there. Young kids, 15, 16 years old, they were carrying 30, 40 rounds of ammunition against the Sandinistas and that's why I did it. I'm not proud of it, but I just didn't have any choice. I mean, the U.S. Congress didn't give us any choice. They got these people into a war. The people went inside of Nicaragua, 80 miles inside. They had thousands of supporters, campesinos there helping them. Now, when those people retreat, those campesinos were murdered by the Sandinistas. I don't want that, but that's the reality of life. End quote. 
In addition, Cesar told the subcommittee that he told a CIA officer about Morales and his offer to help the Contras. Quote, Senator Kerry, did you have occasion to say to someone in the CIA that you were getting money from him and you were concerned he was a drug dealer? Did you pass that information on to somebody? Mr. Cesar, yes, I passed the information on about the, not the relations, well, it was the relations and the airplanes, yes, and the CIA people at the American Military Attaché's office that were based in Ilopango also, and any person or any plane landed there, they had to go. Senator Kerry. And they basically said to you that it was all right as long as you don't deal in the powder? Is that correct? Is that a fair quote? Mr. Cesar. Yes. End quote. After the Lapenka bombing of May 30, 1984, all assistance was cut off by the CIA to Arde, while other Contra groups on both fronts continued to receive support from the U.S. government through a variety of channels. The United States stated that the cutoff of Arde was related to the involvement of its personnel in drug trafficking. Yet many of the same drug traffickers who had assisted Arde were also assisting other Contra groups that continued to receive funding. Morales, for example, used Geraldo Duran as one of his drug pilots, and Duran worked for Alfonso Robello and Fernando El Negro Chamorro, who were associated with other Contra groups, as well as for Arte. In a sworn deposition which was taken in San Jose, Costa Rica by the subcommittee on October 31, 1987, Carol Prado, Pastora's treasurer and procurement officer vehemently denied allegations concerning the personal involvement of Arde leadership in drug trafficking. Prado said that because of Pastora's problems with the U.S. government, it was his belief that the CIA was attempting to discredit the former Sandinista Comandante and his supporters in Arde with allegations that they were involved in drug trafficking. Thomas Castillo the former CIA station chief in Costa Rica, who was indicted in connection with the Iran-Contra affair, testified before the Iran-Contra committees that when the CIA became aware of narcotics trafficking by Pastora's supporters and lieutenants, those individuals' activities were reported to law enforcement officials. However, Morales continued to work with the Contras until January 1986. He was indicted for a second time in the Southern District of Florida, for a January 1986 cocaine flight to Bahamas and was arrested on June 12, 1986. Morales testified that he offered to cooperate with the government soon after he was arrested and that he was willing to take a lie detector test. He said his attorneys repeated the offer on his behalf several times, but on each occasion the U.S. attorney, Leon Kellner, refused. Leon Kellner and Richard Gregory then the head of the criminal division of the Miami U.S. Attorney's Office, met with the staff of the committee in November 1986. They said that Morales' story was not credible and that Morales was trying to get his sentence reduced by cooperating with the Senate committee. As Morales had not yet been sentenced, both Kellner and Gregory discouraged the staff from meeting with Morales at that time, and the staff respected their request. Kellner and Gregory said that Morales was like the many Miami cocaine traffickers who used the I was working for the CIA defense. 
Following his testimony before the subcommittee, Morales renewed his offer to work with the government. This time, federal law enforcement officials decided to accept the offer. Morales provided the government with leads that were used by law enforcement authorities in connection with matters remaining under investigation. In November 1988, the DEA gave Morales a lengthy polygraph examination on his testimony before the subcommittee, and he was considered truthful. 7. John Hull John Hull was a central figure in Contra operations on the Southern Front when they were managed by Oliver North from 1984 through late 1986. Before that, according to former Costa Rican CIA Station Chief Thomas Castillo's public testimony, Hull had helped the CIA with military supply and other operations on behalf of the Contras. In addition, during the same period, Hull received $10,000 a month from Adolfo Calero of the FDN at North's direction. Hull is an Indiana farmer who lives in northern Costa Rica. He came to Costa Rica in the mid-1970s and persuaded a number of North Americans to invest in ranch land in the northern part of the country. Using their money and adding some of his own, he purchased thousands of acres of Costa Rican farmland. Properties under his ownership, management, or control ultimately included at least six airstrips. To the many pilots and revolutionaries who passed through the region, this collection of properties and airstrips became known as John Hull's Ranch. On March 23, 1984, seven men aboard a U.S. government-owned DC-3 were killed when the cargo plane crashed near Hull's Ranch, revealing publicly that Hull was allowing his property to be used for airdrops of supplies to the Contras. But even before this public revelation of Hull's role in supporting the Contras, officials in a variety of Latin American countries were aware of Hull's activities as a liaison between the Contras and the United States government. Jose Blandon testified, for example, that former Costa Rican Vice President Daniel Oduber suggested he, Blandon, meet with Hull in 1983 to discuss the formation of a unified Southern Contra command under Eden Pastora. Five witnesses testified that Hull was involved in cocaine trafficking. Floyd Carlton, Werner Lotz, Jose Blandon, George Morales, and Gary Betzner. Betzner was the only witness who testified that he was actually present to witness cocaine being loaded onto planes headed for the United States in Hull's presence. Lotz said that drugs were flown into Hull's ranch, but that he did not personally witness the flights. He said he heard about the drug flights from the Colombian and Panamanian pilots who allegedly flew drugs to Hull's airstrips. Lotz described the strips as, quote, a stop for refuel, basically. The aircraft would land, there would be fuel waiting for them, and then they would depart. They would come in with weapons and drugs, end quote. Lotz said that Hull was paid for allowing his airstrips to be used as a refueling stop. Two witnesses, Blandone and Carlton, recounted an incident involving the disappearance of a shipment of 538 kilos of cocaine owned by the Pereira or Cali cocaine cartel. Teofilo Watson, a member of Carlton's smuggling operation, was flying the plane to Costa Rica for the cartel. The plane crashed, and Watson was killed. 
The witnesses believed that the crash occurred at Hull's ranch and that Hull took the shipment and bulldozed the plane, a Cessna 310, into the river. Carlton testified that the Colombians were furious when they discovered the cocaine missing. He said they sent gunmen after Hull and, in fact, kidnapped a member of Hull's family to force the return of the cocaine. When that failed, they became convinced that Carlton himself stole the cocaine, and they sent gunmen after him. The gunmen dug up Carlton's property in Panama with a backhoe looking for the lost cocaine, and Carlton fled for his life to Miami. Gary Betzner started flying for Morales' drug smuggling network in 1981. Betzner testified that his first delivery of arms to the Contras was in 1983, when he flew a DC-3 carrying grenades and mines to Ilopango Air Force Base in El Salvador. His co-pilot on the trip was Richard Healy, who had flown drugs for Morales. Betzner said the weapons were unloaded at Ilopango by Salvadoran military personnel and an American whom he assumed worked for the U.S. Department of Defense. Betzner testified that he and Healy flew the plane on to Columbia, where they picked up a load of marijuana and returned to their base at Great Harbor Cay in the Bahamas. According to Betzner, the next Contra weapons and drugs flight took place in July 1984. Morales asked him to fly a load of weapons to Hull's ranch and to pick up a load of drugs. Betzner flew a Cessna 402B to John Hull's ranch. According to Betzner, he was met at the airstrip by Hull, and they watched the cargo of weapons being unloaded and cocaine packed in 17 duffel bags and five or six two-foot square boxes being loaded into the now-empty Cessna. Betzner then flew the plane to a field at Lakeland, Florida. Yet another guns-for-drugs flight was made two weeks later. On this trip, Betzner said he flew a panther to an airstrip called Locianos, about 10 miles from Hull's properties and not far from the Voice of America transmitter in northern Costa Rica. Betzner testified that Hull met him again, and the two watched while the weapons were unloaded and approximately 500 kilos of cocaine and 17 duffel bags were loaded for the return flight to Florida. Hull became the subject of an investigation by the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Florida in the spring of 1985. In late March 1985, Assistant U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Feldman and two FBI agents went to Costa Rica to investigate Neutrality Act violations by participants in the Contra Resupply Network that were also under investigation at the same time by Senator Kerry. Both the Feldman and Kerry inquiries had been prompted in part by statements made to reporters by soldiers of fortune imprisoned in Costa Rica who alleged John Hull was providing support for the Contras with the help of the National Security Council. Feldman and the FBI agents met with U.S. Ambassador to Costa Rica, Louis Tams, and the CIA Chief of Station, Thomas Castillo, who told him John Hull knew Rob Owen and Oliver North and gave the impression that Hull had been working for U.S. interests prior to March of 1984. In addition, one of the embassy security officers, Jim Nagel, told one of the FBI agents accompanying Feldman that regarding Feldman's inquiries, quote, these were agencies with other operational requirements, and we shouldn't interfere with the work of these agencies, end quote. 
When Feldman attempted to interview Hull, Feldman learned that Hull was told by the embassy staff not to talk to him without an attorney present. Feldman concluded that U.S. embassy officials in Costa Rica were taking active measures to protect Hull. After Feldman interviewed two of the mercenaries, Peter Glibery and Stephen Carr, regarding their allegations of Hull's involvement in criminal activity, Feldman learned that Kirk Cotula, consul in San Jose, was, quote, trying to get Carr and the rest of these people to recant their statements regarding Hull's involvement with the CIA and with any other American agency. Feldman added, quote, It was apparent we were stirring up some problem with our inquiries concerning John Hull. End quote. Feldman concluded that because Hull was receiving protection from some U.S. officials, that it would not be possible to interview him. Feldman, therefore, took no further steps to do so. In an effort to stop the investigation against him and to cause the Justice Department to instead investigate those urging an investigation of Hull, Hull prepared falsified affidavits from jailed mercenaries in Costa Rica to U.S. Attorney Kellner. In the affidavits, the mercenaries accused congressional staff of paying witnesses to invent stories about illegal activities associated with the clandestine Contra supply network. The Justice Department ultimately concluded that the affidavits had been forged. Kellner testified that he, quote, had concerns about them and didn't believe them, end quote. To this day, the Justice Department has taken no action against John Hull for obstruction of justice or any related charge in connection with his filing false affidavits with the U.S. Justice Department regarding the congressional investigations. In the period in which he was providing support to the Contras, Hull obtained a loan from the Overseas Private Investment Corporation for $375,000, which ultimately proved to have been obtained with false documentation. In 1983, Hull and two associates, Mr. William Crone and Mr. Alvaro Arroyo, approached OPIC for a loan to finance a joint venture wood products factory that would make wheelbarrow and axe handles for the U.S. market. In fact, according to testimony from Crone and OPIC officials, no contributions from Hull, Arroyo, or himself were made to the joint venture. On the basis of the application, some supporting documentation, and a site visit on March 30, 1984, OPIC advanced $375,000. By the end of 1985, after one interest payment, the loan lapsed into default, and OPIC officials began to recognize that the project was a fraud, and that Hull had made false representations in making the application to OPIC. OPIC officials found that the money which was dispersed by their agency was deposited in Hull's Indiana bank account, and the funds were withdrawn by Hull in cash. When OPIC inquired in 1986 as where the funds were going, Hull told OPIC officials that he would be using the cash to buy Costa Rican money on the black market to get a more favorable exchange rate. In fact, Costa Rica has a favorable exchange rate for foreign investment, and the excuse Hull offered does not make sense. What appears to have happened is that Hull simply took the money, inasmuch as no equipment was purchased for the factory, no products were shipped from it, and Hull's partner, Crone, testified that he never saw the money. Indeed, 
prospective purchasers complained that they paid whole for products in advance but never received delivery. On the basis of the subsequent OPIC investigation of the loan to Hull's company in April 1987, the case was referred to the Justice Department for a criminal fraud investigation. While nothing has yet happened for almost two years, the Justice Department maintains the investigation is still ongoing. OPIC foreclosed on the properties which Hull had put up as collateral for the loan. Following the foreclosure to recover their monies, OPIC sold the property at auction. However, in order to prevent a sale far below the market price, OPIC bid at the auction and wound up purchasing its own property for $187,500. OPIC then attempted to sell the property directly. An advertisement was placed in the Wall Street Journal, which attracted a single offer from an investment banker in Philadelphia. An agreement was negotiated whereby the company purchasing the property from OPIC was required to make no down payment and only to repay OPIC its $187,500 from the future proceeds of the sale of timber cut on the land. The corporation which purchased the property has no other assets other than the land. If the agreement is fulfilled by the purchasers of the land, OPIC will realize repayment of $187,500, half of the original $375,000 loaned to Hull. The subcommittee also heard testimony from investors who had allowed Hull to purchase property for them and then to manage the property, who testified that he did not deliver on his promises. He failed to purchase the properties he said he would, and in one case, took farm equipment off a farm he was paid to manage and converted it for his own use. In mid-January 1989, Hull was arrested by Costa Rican law enforcement authorities and charged with drug trafficking and violating Costa Rica's neutrality. Nine, the San Francisco Frogman case, UND, FRAN, and PCNE. The San Francisco Frogman case was one of the first cases in which allegations linking specific Contra organizations to drug smugglers surfaced. In a July 26, 1986 report to the Congress on Contra-related narcotics allegations, the State Department described the Frogman case as follows, quote, This case gets its nickname from swimmers who brought cocaine ashore on the West Coast from a Colombian vessel in 1982 to 1983. It focused on a major Colombian cocaine smuggler, Alvaro Carvajal Minota, who supplied a number of West Coast smugglers. It was alleged, but never confirmed, that Nicaraguan citizen Horatio Pereira, an associate of Carvajal, had helped the Nicaraguan resistance. Pereira was subsequently convicted on drug charges in Costa Rica and sentenced to 12 years imprisonment. Two other Nicaraguans, Carlos Cabezas and Julio Zavala, who were among the jailed West Coast traffickers convicted of receiving drugs from Carvajal, claimed long after their conviction that they had delivered large sums of money to resistance groups in Costa Rica and that Pereira, who was not charged in the case, has said the profits from the drug sale would finance resistance activities. End quote. 
The allegations made by Cabezas and Zavala involved two Southern Front Contra groups, UNDN-FARN, a military group associated with Fernando El Negro Chamorro, and PCNE, a Contra political group in the South. Cabezas claimed that he helped move 25 to 30 kilos of cocaine from Costa Rica to San Francisco, generating $1.5 million. According to Cabezas, part of that money was given to Troyo and Fernando Sanchez to help Eden Pastoras and Fernando El Negro Chamorro's operations on the Southern Front in 1982 and 1983. After the trial, the U.S. government returned $36,020 seized as drug money to one of the defendants, Zavala, after he submitted letters from Contra leaders claiming the funds were really their property. The money that was returned had been seized by the FBI after being found in cash in a drawer at Zavala's home with drug transaction letters, an M1 carbine, a grenade, and a quantity of cocaine. The subcommittee found that the frogman arrest involved cocaine from a Colombian source, Carvajal Minota. In addition, Zavala and Cabezas had as a second source of supply Nicaraguans living in Costa Rica associated with the Contras. FBI documents from the frogman case identify the Nicaraguans as Horatio Pereira, Troyo Sanchez, and Fernando Sanchez. Pereira was convicted on cocaine charges in Costa Rica in 1985 and sentenced to 12 years in prison. An important member of the Pereira organization was Sebastian Huachan Gonzalez, who also was associated with Arde in Southern Front Contra operations. Robert Owen advised North in February 1985 that Gonzalez was trafficking in cocaine. Jose Blandon testified that Eden Pastora knew that Gonzalez was involved in drug trafficking while he was working with Arde. Gonzalez later left the Contra network and fled from Costa Rica to Panama, where he went to work for General Noriega. During the Pereira trial, evidence was also presented by the Costa Rica prosecutor showing that drug traffickers had asked leader Armando Chamorro, the brother of UDN-FARN leader Fernando El Negro Chamorro, for assistance with vehicles to transport cocaine and for help with a Costa Rica police official. Troyo and Fernando Sanchez were marginal participants in the Contra movement and relatives of a member of the FDN directorate. 10. The Cuban-American Connection Several groups of Miami-based Cuba-Americans provided direct and indirect support for the Southern Front during the period that the Boland Amendment prohibited official U.S. government assistance. Their help, which included supplies and training, was funded in part with drug money. The State Department described the allegations in its July 1986 report to Congress as follows. Quote, There have been allegations that René Corbo and other Cuban-Americans involved in anti-Sandinista activities in Costa Rica were connected with Miami-based drug traffickers. Corbo reportedly recruited a group of Cuban-American and Cuban exile combatants and military trainers in the Miami area who operated inside Nicaragua and in the northern part of Costa Rica. Two Cuban exiles in this group, Mario Rejas Lavas, 
and Ubaldo Hernandez Perez were captured by the Sandinistas in June 1986. They were reportedly members of the UNO-FARN group headed by Fernando El Negro Chamorro. There is no information to substantiate allegations that this group from Miami has been a source of drug money for the UNO-FARN or any other resistance organization. End quote. On May 6, 1986, committee staff met with representatives of the Justice Department, FBI, DEA, CIA, and State Department to advise them of allegations of gun running and drug trafficking in connection with this group. In August 1986, the committee requested information from the Justice Department regarding the allegations concerning Corbo and fellow Cuban-Americans Felipe Vidal, Frank Castro, and Luis Rodriguez and Frank Chances, two of the principals in Frigoríficos de Puntarenas and Ocean Hunter, concerning their involvement in narcotics trafficking. The Justice Department refused to provide any information in response to this request on the grounds that the information requested remained under active investigation and that the committee's, quote, rambling through open investigations gravely risks compromising those efforts, end quote. Less than three months earlier, the Justice Department had advised both the press and the committee that the allegations had been thoroughly investigated and were without foundation. At no time did the Justice Department disclose to the committee in response to its inquiry that extensive information had in fact been developed by the FBI from 1983 through 1986, suggesting that many of the allegations the committee was investigating were true. At the May 6, 1986 meeting with committee staff, the CIA categorically denied that weapons had been shipped to the Contras from the United States on the flights involving Rene Corbo, noting that the material on which they were basing these assertions was classified and suggested that the allegations that had been made to the contrary were the result of disinformation. In fact, as the FBI had previously learned from informants, Cuban-American supporters of the Contras had shipped weapons from South Florida to Ilopongo and from there to John Hull's airstrips in Costa Rica. The persons involved admitted to the FBI that they had participated in such shipments, making general statements about them beginning in 1985. On June 4, 1986, and June 16, 1986, Rene Corbo, one of the principals in the shipments, explicitly told the FBI that he had participated in shipping weapons to the Contras in violation of U.S. neutrality laws. The Cuban-American contingent supported the Contra effort on the Southern Front work with Pastora until a May 30, 1984 bombing at La Penca. After the assassination attempt on Pastora, they shifted their allegiance to Fernando El Negro Chamorro of UDN-FARN. By mid-June 1984, the drug smuggling through the southern front zones controlled by the Contras had grown sufficiently obvious that Robert Owen warned Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North at the NSC that the, quote, Cubans are involved in drugs, end quote. Notes taken by Colonel Robert L. Earle during his tenure at the NSC described how in August 1986, the CIA was worried about, quote, disreputable characters in the Cuban-American community that are sympathetic to the Contra cause but causing more problems than help 
and that one had to be careful in how one dealt with the Cuban-American community and its relation to this, that although their motives were in the right place, there was a lot of corruption and greed and drugs, and it was a real mess, end quote. In August 1988, Corbo and Castro were indicted in a Neutrality Act case involving the Contras brought by the U.S. Attorney for Miami and prosecuted by Assistant U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Feldman. No narcotics-related allegations were included in the August 1988 indictment. One of the three principals in Frigoríficos de Putarenas and Ocean Hunter, Luis Rodriguez, was indicted on drug charges in April 1988. The others, Frank Chains and Moises Núñez, participated in Contra military assistance operations in 1984 and 1985. Núñez was employed by both the drug money laundering front, Frigoríficos de Puntarenas, and by Glenn Robinette on behalf of the Secord North Enterprise. Former CIA Costa Rica Chief of Station Thomas Castillo told the Iran-Contra committees that Núñez, quote, was involved in a very sensitive operation, end quote, for the enterprise. 11. Ramon Milian Rodriguez and Felix Rodriguez A particularly controversial allegation arose during the course of the subcommittee's investigation. This involved Ramon Milian Rodriguez's offer to assist the Contras following his arrest for money laundering. In a June 25, 1987 closed session of the subcommittee, Milian Rodriguez testified that in a meeting arranged by Miami private detective Raul Diaz with Felix Rodriguez, he, Milian, offered to provide drug money to the Contras. Milian Rodriguez stated that Felix accepted the offer, and $10 million in such assistance was subsequently provided the Contras through a system of secret couriers. Milian Rodriguez testified that he also offered to assist in entrapping the Sandinistas in a drug sting, all in return for dropping the charges then pending against him. Felix Rodriguez strenuously denied Milian Rodriguez's version of the meeting, stating that he reported Milian's offer to a number of U.S. government agencies, including the FBI and CIA. No action was taken by those agencies, and Milian Rodriguez's case went to trial. Raul Diaz refused to respond to a committee subpoena to discuss his recollection of the meeting. Therefore, because of the difficulty the subcommittee faced in ascertaining who was telling the truth, Ramon Milian Rodriguez or Felix Rodriguez, Milian was asked whether he would be willing to take a polygraph examination. He agreed to submit to an examination on the question of providing drug money to the Contras through Felix Rodriguez. Senator Kerry the subcommittee chairman arranged for one of the country's leading polygraph experts, Dr. Donald Raskin of the University of Utah, to travel to Washington, D.C. to administer the test. Dr. Raskin administered a partial examination of Milian Rodriguez on June 3rd and 4th, 1988. On two critical questions, Ramon Milian Rodriguez's answers were determined to be deceptive by Dr. Raskin. The questions were as follows. 1. Did Felix Rodriguez ask you to arrange deliveries of money for the Contras during the meeting at Raul's office? Answer, yes. 2. 
Did you arrange approximately five deliveries of money for the Contras on the basis of phone calls you personally received from Felix Rodriguez? Answer, yes. On the third question, Dr. Raskin could not determine whether or not Ramon Milian Rodriguez was being truthful in his response. The question was as follows. 3. Did you arrange the deliveries of at least $5 million for the Contras using the procedures that you and Felix worked out? Answer, yes. At that point, Milian Rodriguez stated that he did not want to continue the examination. Based upon Dr. Raskin's oral evaluation of Ramon Milian Rodriguez, the chairman concluded that his version of the meeting with Felix Rodriguez and his subsequent relationship with Felix in providing drug money for the Contras was not truthful. The chairman reached no conclusion regarding the issue of whether Ramon Millian arranged for the deliveries of at least $5 million for the Contras. During Felix Rodriguez's public testimony before the subcommittee on July 14, 1988, Senator Kerry stated that he did not believe Ramon Millian Rodriguez's version of the meeting was truthful. However, Milian Rodriguez's testimony regarding the cartels, General Noriega's role in narco-trafficking, and his involvement in setting up companies which were later used to support the Contras, was corroborated by a number of witnesses, including Jose Blandon, Floyd Carlton, Gerald Loeb, and a Miami attorney who had supplied information on the cartels in a closed-session deposition. In addition, Milian Rodriguez's testimony on many of these points was corroborated by extensive documentary evidence and by grand jury statements by his partners in federal criminal proceedings. This is Our Hidden History, 